Operation Christmas Child, all that information is out there in the foyer. If you're interested in getting involved with that, once again, great opportunity to get a blessed child with Christmas, but most importantly, get a chance to bless them with the gospel message. And also, car care is going to be coming up November 8th, I believe. So we hit that Sunday, but we didn't have the sign-up sheet out yet. Sign-up sheet's back there to my right. If you're interested in getting involved with car care, what that is, is a free oil change and service check for anybody involved out here at church, and we would like to get a chance to bless you with that. If you want to help out with that, you can see Jason, or if you have any questions about that, see Jason. If you don't know who Jason is, see me, and I'll point you in the right direction. But back there to the right is the sign-up sheet for that. All righty. No, excuse me. Genesis. Genesis 41. Continuing our study here through the book of Genesis. Joseph gets out of prison tonight, which is good news for Joseph. But we have this story here of Pharaoh's dreams. And we talked about dreams last week. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to get online and listen to that or get a CD of that. Because Joseph, in prison, had a chance to interpret the dreams of the baker and the butler and God is now going to use that as we get ready to move forward here. Now, I just have to remind you of this. Look at the first part of Genesis 41. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. Two full years. As we've said before, Joseph has been in prison for at least two years and potentially up to 30, excuse me, up to 13 years. We don't know for sure how long. We know that he was probably around 17 years old when he was sold as a slave. And we know in this chapter that he's 30 years old when he gets out of prison. So if he got sold as a slave, right away went to Egypt, right away the whole thing happened with Potiphar's wife, he could have been in prison for 10 plus years. We know it's been at least two years, but we don't know how long for sure. Remember the bookends of Joseph's life. We've mentioned this, I think, every week. We've studied through Joseph. The first passage is found in the book of Psalms, where it says that the Lord used these tough events in Joseph's life to prepare his heart for something bigger later on. Remember that. And the next bookend is found at the end in Genesis 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. So the Lord allowed these things in Joseph's life to prepare him to make his heart strong for what the Lord had in store. But at the end, Joseph also says, God used this for good. So remember that. If you're going through something difficult right now, the Lord is using that to grow you, to strengthen you. And he's got something great at the end. We've got to trust him on that. We've got to trust him. So here we go. He's in prison for two years. Jump back one verse to Genesis 40, verse 23. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. If you remember the context from last week, when Joseph interpreted the butler's dream and said, Hey, don't forget when you get out, don't forget me. The butler, verse 23, forgot him. What do you think was going through Joseph's mind? Have you ever had anybody tell you something like, Hey, I'll get right back to you. And they didn't get right back to you. In this age of technology... You know, I've had people before where I've texted them and we're texting back and forth and you're just staring at your phone waiting that text to come through. You keep refreshing your email or something along that type of lines. Have you ever forgot that? That's happened to me with the boys. I remember one time I told one of the boys that I was going to go get something for him. They were so excited for that. I said, I think it was either go in my room and wait or go into the kitchen and wait. I completely forgot. That little guy just sat in there eagerly anticipating. I never showed up. <laughs> Have you ever been forgotten? Don't you think right after the butler left, Joseph thought, finally, finally. And then days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, months turned into years. Two years later, two years later, finally this comes to fruit. Just remember the simple point, God's timing is not your timing. See, so often we think of God's timing as being our timing. It's not our timing. So when God gives us these promises and starts saying things like, don't worry, in all things I'll work for the good, oh, amen, good may be 40 years down the road. See, when the Lord says something about, don't worry, I'll give you peace, I'll give you comfort, because I'll help you through this storm. Oh, good, the storm's going to end. 
The storm may not end right away. We have to remember God's timing is not our timing. Two years later, we finally see Joseph out of this prison, and there's quite an event that helps us get to this point. There's a lot of verses here. This is a long chapter. So a lot of this we're just going to kind of read and hit the highlights, and we've got a couple practical points we're going to hit. So Joseph has this dream. Genesis 41, second half of verse 1. Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then, behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke. And indeed, it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them for Pharaoh. So that sets the scene. Two dreams here. We have the seven fat cows that get ate by the seven skinny cows. And then we have the seven plump heads of grain get ate by the seven blighted uh, things of grain. Now, Pharaoh doesn't know what's going on. So verse 8, he calls for all the magicians and all the wise men. And guess what happens? There is no one who could interpret the dream for Pharaoh. Verse 8 is such a simple verse. You know, when you're going through difficult times, you can turn to the world and the wisdom of the world all you want. And you're not going to find the answers you're looking for. You're not. 1 Corinthians 1 just makes it so clear that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world got to remember that. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. And how many times as believers have we turned to the world for answers, wisdom, or guidance, and we've just been disappointed in that? Now, that doesn't mean that there's not wise people in the world. I'm thankful for doctors and nurses, etc. I'm thankful for those people that can help. But if we're looking for good advice to help us through life, it always concerns me when someone comes up and says, well, you know, I've really been struggling with my marriage. So I was talking to Susie on the line with me at work, and Susie thinks I should do this. Okay, well, who's Susie? Is she a born-again believer searching God through the Spirit for wisdom on your marriage? Well, no, but Susie's got some great ideas. Well, I'm sure she does, because the world has some great ideas. But great ideas are not biblical ideas. And we need to remember that there is a wisdom of the world that sometimes makes sense, sounds good, looks good, but it doesn't line up with the scriptural basis of wisdom. And if you want to know wisdom, the Bible says that Jesus himself is personified as wisdom. So if we want wisdom, we can go verse 8 to the world all we want. No one's going to be able to answer your questions. It has to be the biblical foundation of the world. So verse 9, then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh saying, I remember my faults this day. Basically says, I screwed up. I screwed up. Verse 10, when Pharaoh was angry with the servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. Years later, Joseph is finally has his opportunity. He's finally out of prison. God's timing, 
not our timing. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Verse 16, simple point. Don't take the glory. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize that I bring absolutely nothing to the table. I don't know if you guys are doing the small group study or not, but the small group that I'm doing over in the Signet area, we were talking on Sunday about this idea of grace, how beautiful this picture of grace is. And really, when you really look at what grace is, you understand how really despicable we are. I mean, we are just these awful people, and yet we still think there's something in us that's inherently good. God saved me because he wanted to use me. No, God saved me because he just loved me. The Lord is blessing me because he sees my obedience and my diligence. No, the Lord blesses because he's the Lord. And we think there's something good within us when really there's nothing. I mean, Joseph, verse 16, really could have played his cards here and said, you know what, you get me out of prison, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. He didn't. He just comes right out and says, it's not me, it's the Lord. What a great, simple point. Don't take the glory. It's all the Lord. He's the reason He blesses. He's the reason He does things. It has nothing to do with us. And we have to make sure that we never allow these thoughts to come through our mind of, well, the reason I'm doing so well is because God knows how good I am at. No. No. It's the Lord and the Lord alone. Verse 17, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have ever never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly at the beginning. So I awoke. So just a real quick repeat, verse 22. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. I just want to repeat this point one more time. The emptiness of the wisdom of the world. Verse 8. Egypt at this time is the pinnacle of the world society. Verse 8, no one can help. Verse 24, there is no one who can explain it to me. What a perfect opportunity for the Lord to step in and do something. That's exactly what God does through Joseph. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Do not underestimate Joseph in his boldness. He is standing before the most powerful man in the world. The most powerful man in the world. He is a Hebrew. He is a foreigner. He is a slave. He is a convicted rapist. He is standing before Pharaoh, telling him about God. Do you know what the Egyptians believed at this time? That Pharaoh was God. So Joseph, as a convicted felon, in prison, a slave, a foreigner, is standing before Egypt's version of God, telling him about God. Don't underestimate the boldness of this. This is a pretty big deal. I think we've heard this story so much, it's like, oh, isn't that neat? Joseph's talking about God. That's a pretty big deal. In fact, that is a huge deal. He doesn't back down at all. Verse 29, Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. Can you imagine that? This famine is so awful that people are going to stop and say, I don't even remember the last time we had food. 
Verse 32, And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, a couple points here. This is something I've seen in my life, this idea of repeating it twice. Verse 32, There's a great passage in Deuteronomy that says, Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses that things will be established. A lot of times people come up and say something to me and they say it one time and I hear it, but it doesn't really register. But when I hear it the second time in a very short time frame, all of a sudden, the Spirit says, are you paying attention? I'll give you an example of that. I was listening to some messages last week by two different pastors, and the one pastor just made this point. I thought, oh, that's a neat point. Listen to a different message the next day, the same, same idea through a different pastor. And it's like, okay, I need to know this, Lord. You're using this. And then Rich and I are out doing some ministry today, and I bring that point up. It's like, okay, Lord, I see what you were doing now. You were preparing this. So I'm just telling you this. You may read something in devotions one day and kind of just overlook it. And the next day or two days later, the same thing pops up. God is preparing you for something. Or somebody in the body may say something to you, and you may just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. Somebody says something a couple days later. God is preparing you for something. So when you start hearing the Lord repeat things two, three times, start paying attention. God is very good at words. And he doesn't like to repeat himself for no reason. Joseph is telling Pharaoh, you had these dreams twice because God, this is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Not to be repetitious on this point, but I'm going to be repetitious on this point. Verse 32, Joseph is talking to Egypt's version of God. And he's telling him, this is established by God, and God is going to bring this shortly to pass. That's a big statement. Big God, big G, is telling little God, little G, what's really going to happen. And he's using the foreign prisoner slave standing beside, excuse me, standing in front of Pharaoh to do that. Now, real quick, we're going to take a quick break here for a second. Anybody have any quick questions, comments about anything we've covered here thus far before we move on? Ryan. And that is a great observation of the same thing. Daniel is a slave. He's a foreigner, etc. But if I remember correctly, the one thing with Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's rules were, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You've got to interpret the dream, but also tell me what the dream I had was. Which I always thought that was a little bit of tidbit there. You know, imagine that. You're going before the king, and the king says, I want you to tell me my, what my dream means. And you say, sure, tell me the dream. And the king says, nah, if you're worth your money, you're going to tell me what my dream was. And then tell me what the interpretation was. And I think if I remember correctly, Nebuchadnezzar even came out and said, and if you can't do it, I'm going to kill you. So, he said they cut them to pieces and turned the house into a dunghill. Well, it sounds like killing them. Yeah, cutting pieces and turn a house into a dunghill. That's, a, that's an eloquent way of saying I'm going to kill you. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Pharaoh here at least gives us the dream first. So, Anybody else have anything here before we move on? All right. Now, this is good. This is real good. Joseph goes one step further. Verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning man. Hold on a second. I'm just going to repeat this one more time so make sure you understand what I'm saying. Foreigner, slave, prisoner that doesn't believe that Pharaoh is a god is now telling Egypt's version of God what to do. Just remember that. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. 
Do you realize what just happened here? The Hebrew slave prisoner just told the most powerful man in the world what to do. He wasn't asked to do this. He just did it. Now, I like a lot of points on this, and I want to share a couple things in no particular order. I always tell people this. If you're going to give me advice, don't give me a problem without offering a solution. That always frustrates me. Somebody comes to me and says something, the fact of, Pastor, you need to do something about this. Okay, what do you want me to do? I don't know, but you need to do something. How about you go fast and pray for a while, and the Lord gives you an answer, you come back and share that with me. It always frustrates me when people give me a problem without even giving me a prayerful idea of how can we address this. I like this, that uh, Joseph steps up and says, I think this is what we should do. There's a lot of boldness here. A lot of boldness. Now, there's a really simple practical application for this. And I just want to make sure you know this. How is this for simple? You're going to have seasons in your life where the finances are good. And you're going to have seasons in your life where the finances are bad. So do you know what you do? When the seasons of life is good and the finances are good, you don't spend every penny you have. You store up because you know tough times are coming. I see this a lot. I see somebody working a whole bunch of overtime, and instead of stopping and saying, hey, that overtime's not going to continue, I'm going to go out and buy whatever I want. The overtime's going to end sometime. Take that season of good and start storing aside more. This is just practical financial advice. When the going is good, don't spend every penny you have. Build up your savings because that's being a wise steward of God's money because there's going to come a time when the going is not good and then you have something to fall back on. That's wise steward of God's money. What what, uh, Joseph is saying here is so simple. We're going to take the extra 20% each year in verse 34 and we're going to store this up. How wise is that? How simple is that? The wisdom of God. The wisdom of God there. So nice, just practical application. Verse 37, so the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servant, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? I think that's a pretty good compliment. Verse 38, this is the first reference to the Holy Spirit being upon somebody in the Bible. And this is noticed by who? The Egyptian Pharaoh. Now, I'm not trying to make you squirm when I ask you that question, this question, but I really want to ask you, do people see the Spirit of God in you? See, when I see something like this in verse 38, I step back and I think, wow, when's the last time someone looked at me and said, wow, I see the Spirit of God in that man? You know, I think as believers, there's this word that the New Testament uses all the time called evident. That our works, our faith in the Lord are supposed to be evident of what God is doing and moving in us. And people that are around you on a regular basis, co-workers, friends, and family, do they see the Spirit of God in you? I mean, do they see the fruit of your walk with Christ? One of my favorite verses in the Bible says, Let your progress be evident to all men, that they may see your growth. People that work with you daily, do they start noticing your growth in the Lord? Hey, you don't cuss as much, you don't say things as much, you don't complain like everybody. They see spiritual growth in you. Joseph had something in him where Pharaoh said, I see the Spirit of God in him. I think sometimes as a church, as the body of Christ, we've lost that. We dress like the world, we talk like the world, we act like the world, we live like the world, and then when we work with the world, we work the same way the world does. We should be different. The Spirit of God should be evident in us. Verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. 
You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee! So he set him all over the land of Egypt." And Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's pretty big rise right there in God's timing. Can't stress that point to you enough. In God's timing, Joseph became the man that God had called him to be. We can once again safely assume that he had probably been at least sold as a slave now for 10 plus years, maybe all the way up to 13 years. We know he's been in prison for at least two years, possibly longer than that. All of a sudden, literally in an instant, he is now second in charge of Egypt. This is something I've noticed out here at church, and I hope this encourages you. Sometimes the situation is so messy, so messy, that you don't think there can be a solution or an answer. And so you just spend, if not days, if not weeks, months, years, just fasting and praying for it. And it's amazing how quickly these messy situations become fixed in an instant. Because there's been prayer and fasting be put into it, and the Lord is moving behind the scenes, even when you don't see it. Then all of a sudden it just gets fixed. I mean, do you think Joseph daydreamed about this? They're going to bring me before a court again. I'll get a chance to tell my story. And they'll hopefully just let me out of prison. Let me go back and be a slave again. And I can just get out of this prison. Or maybe the butler's going to tell Pharaoh. And Pharaoh will say something like, you know what? I don't know all the details, but I'm going to let you go. And now you can be a slave again. Okay, did he ever once dream? You know what? I'm going to get out of this prison and be second in charge of the entire nation. That's what God does. He always does something bigger and better than what we could ever imagine. And it gets even better. Verse 45, And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphon Panah, which depending on your translation, it means God speaks something along that type of line. And he gave him his wife, Azaneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of An. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, verse 45 always kind of concerned me. Because here's this godly Hebrew now, and he's marrying some Egyptian priest's daughter. But if you want some proof that that did not affect Joseph's walk with the Lord, if you jump down to verses 51 and 52, when Joseph mentions his kids Manasseh and Ephraim, it's very important to note that those are both Hebrew names. So Joseph, it sure looks like, kept his faith even though he was in Egypt, because if he would have went over to the Egyptian side, he would not have named his boys Hebrew names. Being second in charge of Egypt, you probably would have found a little bit more politically correct name to name your kids. But instead, he gives them Hebrew names. Continuing on here, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grains as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of the famine came, whom Azaneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. The name Manasseh means making forgetful. Verse 52, in the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. The name Ephraim means fruitfulness. I just want to share this with you here. If you're taking notes, write this verse down. 
It's Joel 2.25. Joel 2.25. Great passage. I use this a lot, especially in the context of marriage counseling. Joel 2.25 says this, that God will restore to you the years that the locust ate. What that means is this. What he's promising in the book of Joel is that you're coming out of this awful season of life. And it looks like you're going to be scarred from this for the rest of your life. You're going to carry this baggage with you. Joel promises Israel that God's going to restore to you those years you lost. And the years coming up are going to be so good that you're going to forget the pain and hurt that you went through. That's a biblical concept. Joseph, if anybody should have been bitter, it should have been Joseph. Sold as a slave, put in prison. And what does he say? He says, I have forgotten all the pain I went through, Manasseh, and now I'm fruitful and blessed, Ephraim. Boy, I've seen this so many times out here. I've seen marriages that were on the brink of falling apart, and it was awful. They get it right in the Lord, and then the remaining years are so blessed that they kind of forget how bad it was to start with. I've seen people that have come out of maybe bad marriages, bad relationships, bad life situations, and they come into their walk with Christ scarred with baggage. And then through Christ, all of a sudden, you won't even know what they went through because God has helped them forget and God has helped them be fruitful. Manasseh and Ephraim. I tell you, bitterness is an ugly, ugly thing. Ugly thing. Joseph had every right to be bitter, but instead he says, I'm blessed and I forget. God restored to him the years that he lost. Who would have ever thought that this Hebrew convicted prisoner slave would have been second in charge of Egypt? God's timing is not our timing, but God's timing is best. As we get ready to finish this up, anybody got any quick questions, comments here? Ryan. You know, I don't say that for sure. There is seems to be a little bit of a similarity there, but this I know for sure is two different Egyptian words coming together there. And I looked up a pot of means, and I can't remember what it is, and I did not write it down. But I don't think there's really a connection between Potiphar and Potiphar, but they do sound similar. Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying that. yeah, like you said, Davis or David. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else have anything here? Yeah, Russ. Mm-hmm. And that was concerning to me, too. And I will be honest with you, that kind of bothered me. That's why I think it's so important to note here about Manasseh and Ephraim that they kept their Hebrew names to show that Joseph did not go down that route. Now, if you want to get to the fun of extra-biblical sources, which this is not biblical, this is not biblical, please do note, the way they get around this is the uh, Jews believe that this gal right here, Asenath, is the daughter of Dinah. What they believe is, you remember when Dinah was raped by Shechem earlier, what the Jews believe is that Dinah got pregnant, and so she couldn't keep this child because it would be a disgrace. So they took this child, which was a girl, and dropped her off on the edge of Egypt, and then that she became Joseph's wife. That's how certain groups get around it. They just make up a story that sounds good. Sounds great, but there's not a single verse to back this up in any way whatsoever. I guess what I would say to that, and I agree with you, Russ, because I thought the same thing, and I don't mean to repeat this point, but that's why I think it's so important that you see Joseph sticking with Hebrew names for his kids. You see him still mentioning God openly, etc. It sure looks like that this was not in any way whatsoever affecting his walk with the Lord. And we maybe be able to assume that if anything... 
she came around to this side because there doesn't seem to be any arguments with this whole, no, I want an Egyptian name for my kid. But you bring up a good point. I thought about that before, too. Rose. Right. I mean, it's like he didn't have a choice, but not to be something here, he did have a choice to have two kids with her. <laughs> so he did have a choice with that. It wasn't like God just magically gave him two children, though. So, so there was a choice made with that. So I agree with what you're saying there. And we don't know exactly how it started out, per se, but it does sure look like that Joseph still kept his faith through it. But I understand what you're saying. It's not like Joseph went out and said, hey, I like the Potiphar priest's daughter. So, Kathy. Yeah, and that's a good point, too, is the idea of the Lord didn't have a problem with Manasseh and Ephraim. And that's something that's really interesting about this is because, you know, going back to this concept of grace, and I always use the woman caught in adultery as an example. The woman caught in adultery in the New Testament should have been stoned. I mean, that was the rule. She should have been stoned, and technically the guy should have been stoned, too. So Jesus, by offering her forgiveness... Kind of is breaking the rules. Every time Jesus touched a leper, he's breaking the rules. And, you know, Ruth, who's mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, was a Moabite. And if you go back and study the Moabites, God said some really harsh things about the Moabites. But yet she was allowed to be in it. So this is sometimes the difficulty of grace is sometimes we like this idea of legalism. You know, you do this and this is what happens. And Jesus says, yep, that is 100% true but I'll take that on the cross for you. And that's the beauty of grace. So, yeah, there's a lot of these times in the Bible where, once again, the woman called an adultery, etc. The rules were broken, but they were broken by Jesus. Because he says, I'm going to err on the side of grace. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? All right, let's finish this up real quick. Um, Verse 53, then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all lands, but all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you to do, do. The famine was all over the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the lands, which sets us up perfectly next week for Genesis 42, because if the famine is going around, Jacob's family is going to need food. The only place they can get food is to go to Joseph, and you see where the story is going. So that sets us up next week for Genesis 42. Final points I just want to say here real quick. Don't forget the overall picture of Joseph's life. The Lord allowing these difficulties to prepare him for something bigger and better later on. And Joseph was not bitter by this. Manasseh, Ephraim, I am fruitful in the Lord now. I have forgotten all those things I've gone through. Note the perfect timing of God. It may not have been Joseph's timing. I'm sure it wasn't Joseph's timing to wait years. But God's timing was perfect. And here, you once again, you have this man standing boldly. Boldly in front of the Pharaoh, the ruler of the world, if you will, of Egypt, speaking openly about God. What a neat witness, what a neat testimony there. All right, any final questions, comments here before we close up? All right, let's pray and we'll let you go then. Heavenly Father, good to be here. Thankful for this time. 
Help us to be like Joseph. Help us to go out this week and really walk in you that people would see the Spirit of God in us, moving and working as a light and a witness for you. Lord, if there's someone here tonight going through a season of difficulty, help them to remember that you can restore to them the years that are lost. You're a God of grace. You're a God of mercy. Thank you. And Lord, just the practicality, Lord, the practicality of when the going's good, we're blessed by it. But help us to prepare when the going gets tough. We know that you're still the God of that too. We lift this up in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.